Hello, everybody. Welcome to Water Break. This is Water Boy. Good to be with you on Thursday afternoon. Uh, make sure you share the show. We are live right now. I'll be on the uh, YouTube comment side of things and be able to answer any questions that, as they pop up. For you on Facebook, you just get to watch. I can't answer questions on Facebook. I can't monitor two things at once. So um, make sure you hop over to YouTube if you want to ask any questions. Uh, before I get into our guest, you guys already know him pretty well, David Bonson. Uh, a couple things I, I need to bring to your attention. First off, uh, our Fight Life Feast University, we got two classes starting in July. Really excited about these classes. One class is Education and Warfare, how to start a school, how to start Christian school. And I, I don't want to just um, limit it to thinking about to how to start a school. It's bigger than that. It's how to think about Christian education how to, how to be thinking about our current uh, uh, education system and how we need to be planting for, planning for the future. Excuse me there. Jesse Sumter is going to be teaching that class. He's going to bring in Pastor Wilson, Toby, Pastor Toby, uh, uh, Dr. Stevenson from Logos Online, and a number of other uh, people. It's going to be a really good class. These are live uh, in-person instruction classes on Zoom. Uh, bring your whole family. We only got spots for 25 Households, so sign up for that. The other one is Life is Hardy Har Hard. This is our comedian John Brannan talking. It's a comedy workshop for Christians. Of course, if you guys were at a rally in South Dakota, he was fantastic. John Brannan's hilarious, uh, and he's going to be doing a, a workshop also. So go to fightlifefeast.com, click on Fight Life Feast University, and you can sign up for those two classes starting in July. It's a lot of fun. Get your whole family there. And uh, of course, I want to remind you guys we have our Politics of Sex conference coming up. In Tennessee, uh, September 9th through the 11th. And, and David Bonson's also coming out to speak at that conference, too. So make sure you guys, registration should have been live this week, but we're overworked, uh, little staff. It should be out next week, uh, registration. And you, you got to register quickly. It's going to go fast. We're really excited for that conference. We're going to have, we're hoping to have about 2,000 people there, 40 vendors. Uh, on Saturday, we're going to do SWAT talks. We're going to have about uh, about 20 or so people doing a bunch of talks on Saturday. Uh, so it's going to be hope, – we hope you leave that conference overwhelmed and encouraged at the same time. So uh, let me introduce uh, David. You guys already probably know David Bonson, but David Bonson is the managing, uh, founding managing partner and chief investment officer of the Bonson Group, a bicoastal private wealth management firm with offices in Newport, New York, uh, managing over 2.8 billion dollars in client assets david always man love love having you come on thanks for coming back on the show i always love being on with you and i appreciate you having me yeah you bet so um th this last year was basically an artificial economic depression um you know the, the politics of covid told everyone to kind of stay home uh not produce as much and then on top of that they kind of dumped in five trillion in stimulus money into into the economy obviously not all that's all the way through yet um so what what does kind of last year mean what did we do last year and what kind of cocktail did we create the biggest the biggest long-term economic ramification of the post-covid medicine economically is going to be uh out of the central bank the um the fed's role and the way that the society indiscriminately looked to the Fed for a role is at this point so much more aggressive than I think anybody seems to understand and certainly seems to understand intelligently. I think there's a lot of rhetoric and, and, and things that can circulate. But as far as really appreciating 
the fact that the Fed is truly looked to right now in a very bipartisan basis mm-hmm. to be an economic savior of sorts, um, it, it was retrenched in the COVID moment. It already existed. Yeah. It was the medicine post-financial crisis, mm-hmm. and you could argue it had been building for about uh, 15 years before the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. But out of the COVID moment, if I were to highlight one thing for you that I think will have long-term economic ramifications out of all of the COVID year insanity, it will be the Fed's greater role in economic management. So if, if you were head of the Fed, uh, knowing that that pressure is is there, how would what would you be doing right now as head uh, of the Fed? You know, I, I, I the problem with the question is that I if I were head of the Fed and everything were exactly what it is. Yeah. And we and we were living in reality. And so I'm not answering idealistically, but I'm answering with the burdens of leadership and and real pragmatic reality what I would do is probably different mm-hmm. than, than where I wish things actually were right now and could go. Yeah. And this is something that does separate me, I believe, from a lot of, of Christian economic-minded folks that I, I do believe that there is a burden that when things have been done badly for a long time, yeah. that we don't have the luxury of coming in and making it all worse as a punishment for what was done wrongly before. Yeah. And and so the gradualism and incrementalism that I believe in theologically and eschatologically mm-hmm. um, would have to be a part of what I would do if I were on the Fed board tomorrow. But fundamentally, to get to your question that's a little bit more fun, yeah. is the Fed has a dual mandate that is at odds with itself. The Fed is chartered by Congress with uh, trying to work towards full employment and trying to work towards price stability. And it's rooted in an economic uh, belief that is fallacious, which is that those things are at odds with one another. Mm. So full employment and price stability can both coexist. There mm-hmm. isn't a yin-yang to play around with. Right. The Phillips curve, for those who are familiar with that, from the 1970s mm-hmm. is, is a failed economic thesis. And the Fed right now is still trying to play by the rules of a, a dual mandate that I mm-hmm. believe is, is fundamentally flawed. But then what they've done on top of it is add a third mandate, which is essentially to constantly be not just a lender of last resort, which, by the way, I very much believe in. I think that the Fed as a central bank ought to play the role of lender of last resort. I think it's a perfectly constitutional and legitimate function. But what the Fed has decided to do is to be the savior of last resort. Okay. That at any time there is any problems in the business cycle, they are there to smooth it out. And I categorically disagree with that interpretation of their charter. So you aren't you aren't a Ron Paul in the Fed kind of guy? No, I'm not. And and so for you know a lot of people know about the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, it's kind of a an organization that's very nebulous I think to most people. So how does yes. how does the Federal Reserve you know actually um, impact the economy, impact, you know, me and here in Moscow, Idaho? Well, the Federal Reserve has a significant role in the money supply. The Fed has the primary role in the setting of short-term interest rates. 
Now, only the market can set longer term interest rates. Mm -hmm. People are willing to lend the government money for 10 years at 1.5%. And that is not the Fed. The Fed can impact through their control of the short term rate because they set the rate through market operations that banks will lend to each other in very short term periods. Um, but I don't want to get overly academic or, or, or bore the audience. I, I probably have already done that. But <laughs> the, the major issue is that the Fed has become, um, uh, they called it the Greenspan put for many years, that Greenspan was there to kind of bail out risk assets. Um, I don't know what happened to the housing market in Moscow, Idaho, uh, back in the, in the financial crisis. But the Fed viewing itself as we have to go provide a bailout to those who are over indebted in their homes. There is no part of the country. This is not a wall street thing or a main street thing. This is not a blue state or red state thing Um, where there is excessive leverage in the financial system, in corporate America in main street and households Uh or primarily in cities, states, and of course the federal government, the Fed has a hand in all of that because the Fed enables or encourages uh, risk taking. And of course, they have the ability to discourage risk taking as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but my belief is that the Fed right now has a profoundly um, dangerous role in American economic management. Mm-hmm. And where I'm really very frustrated with people like Ron Paul, who for the first time, someone on the right kind of got an audience to talk about the Fed, Mm -hmm. and rather than say a lot of the things that I believe the American people desperately needed to hear, you use the word nebulous. It's why the Fed has become such a gigantic creature in the economy, because people don't understand it. Mm -hmm. And then Ron Paul chose to use his microphone to share utterly insane conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody tuned it out, Uh where I think we really need to have a very grown-up societal conversation about the central bank's role in our economy. But, you know, given like kind of a truly free market economy, why would we need the federal reserve there? What, what, like, I guess, give me a free market uh, argument for why having an organization, a governmental quasi governmental organization like the federal government there. Well, I mean, the constitution is who wrote in the uh, Congress having the ability, the, the, not just the ability, the authority and the duty to, to regulate money supply, the, the, the specific itemized powers go back to the founding fathers. And there was differences of opinion in the 19th century. Jefferson and Madison thought that they were onto something to resist Alexander Hamilton's belief that we needed a national bank with papers. Uh-huh. But he believed that we still needed a national bank um, that was, at the time, the first national bank, very central to being able to pay off the America's war debts. Right. But um, Madison and Jefferson resisted it. And then the second time around said, "Okay, we were wrong. And they voted in favor of it. And and, uh, the 19th century had different periods of up and down the American economy. Um, And and obviously, the Civil War in between there was a major disruption. But there were a few decades post-Civil War where a lot of things were happening in a classical economic sense that a lot of people would have been happy with. Okay. And that was under, um, there was a, a chartered national bank. But I think that the answer to your question is why you need a central bank is what we learned in some of the ongoing recessions and depressions of the late 19th and early 20th century, 
was that in a liquidity trap, you needed a lender of last resort. Uh-huh. But see, I, when I say that, that almost has nothing to do with what the Fed does now. Uh, right. And so my belief that there is nothing tyrannical or statist about having a lender of last resort that facilitates liquidity mm-hmm. to member banks and member banks have to put up their own capital. That's why it's free market. Right. But that that bank is there as a creature of the federal government to be the lender of last resort. We had one in the early 19th, in the early 20th century, but it was JP Morgan. Right. And he was ha- having to personally underwrite. So unless one believes that a free market means not having a currency, mm-hmm. that we would have a free market only through barter of goods and services. Or gold. To the ex- yeah, to the yeah. extent we've decided that we're going to modernize the economy and use a currency as a medium of exchange, mm-hmm. then um, the, I think the Fed plays a key role. That Where I would just totally disagree with modern manifestations of a central bank is empowering that central bank to do a lot more than that. And that genie long ago left the bottom. <laughs> right, right. So give, give me an example of, of what do you mean, like last resort of liquidity? What do you, you know, give me an example of what that looks like. Well, let's say that we have a country and there's two people in it. And mm-hmm. one of them is Gabe and one of them is David. And we want to transact with each other. And there's $10 of money supply. And I have something that you want to buy. And I um, and, and you have something I want to uh, that that I want to buy, yeah. and I buy it from you, okay? Um, and and so now you have the money, and I don't, but I got the product I want. Right. And now you're a little worried about things being slow in our economy. You just notice that um, there's not a lot of activity in our two man island, uh-huh. and so you hold on to that money, and you don't want to trade for a while. You're afraid of what's about to come. And yet I have productivity, but there's not the liquidity for me to transact with uh-huh. and to enable economic activity. There is a perfectly sufficient ability for us to produce goods and services and from that production create demand for such, yep. but there's no liquidity because you're holding on to it. Yep. And so the ability of a money good business with collateral or a money good bank with collateral to borrow in a time of contraction, this is not disputed by any free market economist who's okay. ever lived. Um, there are points in which there is a need for liquidity and a central bank can play that role. And I believe that many people can argue that that role could be filled apart from a central bank. Um, it, it's a reasonably fringe point of view, but you could make it. Yeah. But what I would argue that is um, more sympathetic with those folks who are big Fed critics is I don't think you need to give all the power of the decision-making to an unelected board of 12 people. Yeah, um, I think that it could be uh, rules-driven, that you could have a lot of the things that the Fed now is empowered to do, which is primarily because now we have to get past the simplicity of you and me on a two-man island, right. the complexity of a country of 330 million people and trillions of dollars of gross domestic product setting the interest rate at which banks will lend to one another um, apart from any rule, only at kind of our finger in the wind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think these are well-meaning people. Yep. I've had a chance to meet and get to know many folks from the Fed over the years. Okay. I disagree with a lot of the decisions some of them have made, mm-hmm. but I vehemently disagree with folks like Ron Paul that the mistakes or disagreements that guys like Ben Bernanke or even right now Jay Powell would make that it's rooted in them being deeply evil or sinister people. These are people that are just living out a very consistently 
academic theses they believe in that I happen to think are wrong. Yeah, right. So that scenario you just described between me and you, um, that third person or that third you know central bank that has to come in to provide li- liquidity, doesn't that necessitate the printing of of dollars of fiat cash? Uh, well, it doesn't have to be fiat. Uh, okay. It depends on the our nation is now a fiat currency, but we had a central bank for sixty years before we had fiat, uh, purely fiat. Uh-huh. Um, we went uh, completely off the gold standard, but for a few decades before we went off of it, we were having exchange rates float. And so, there's all sorts of different um, theories around all this stuff. But at the end of the day, the idea of having a currency backed by something is something I intend to write a book on one day. I'm not a gold standard guy anymore, but I would be very happy to have a gold standard as long as we stayed on it. Once you've gone off of it, it's virtually impossible to get back on. But I am in favor of a rules-based system. And so whether if people believe that the the yellow metal is the right rule-based or if others believe in a bimetallic system, Mm -hmm. which is what a lot of free market economists believed, Mm -hmm. it didn't have to be gold. There could be competition amongst metals. Yep. If you believe it had been a basket of commodities that goes beyond metals, um, either way, the um, disagreement some people have with fractional reserve banking and the disagreement some people have with fiat currency is a completely different conversation okay. from a disagreement people have with a central bank as a lender of last resort. Okay. So you're, you're arguing that it'd still be good to ground the American dollar into something like gold or, 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 Multiple, multiple, multiple metals, or something like that. Uh, yeah, but at this point, I don't think it's about the dollar as much as the interest rate. The cost of money, I think, is a more important thing to ground than the supply itself. Ultimately, the supply of money has to be grounded by um, uh, the people being willing to control the size of government, and and that's a moral issue, not a economic one. Okay. And so you like the feds being more involved in the interest rate side of things right now, given our current economy, current context and all that. I like the fed being more involved with it. Is that, is that what you're saying there? No, um, I, 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 I wouldn't mind the fed being involved in the setting of short-term interest rates. If it were to a rules based system. Okay. Okay. That's helpful because right now, I mean, obviously interest rates are super low. You have the, uh, you know, housing boom kind of, on the back, there's a number of things that are affecting it, but it, it you know, um, but in, low interest rates are, are a big part of that. Do you think that the low interest rates are going to cause another, you know, um, uh, you know, housing crisis that kind of caused the last downturn in the economy? I don't, but I believe that they're going to do something just as bad. And this is this is something, Gabe, that I think is really important that we not do as Christians. I think Christians do it all the time. And by the way, conservatives who aren't Christians do it a lot, too. Sure. And it's fighting yesterday's battles. And then in doing so, they miss tomorrow's battles and we lose credibility in the public square. Okay. I don't think you have to have a repeat of 2008 to have something that's very bad. Yeah. And to your point, which I think was nothing more than artificially low interest rates, create malinvestment and bubbly prices right. in housing. Increased that's an prices. indisputable fact. Yep. You're completely right, 100%. But then when we say, so therefore, will we have another housing crisis like 08? We very likely won't because in addition to very low rates and excessive prices, you also had a ridiculous amount of leverage 
that was built up in the system uh-huh. that right now is not as possible. It would be much harder post 2008 for banks to be able to lever up and the loan to values are significantly lower, which is another way of saying the equity is significantly higher than it was pre crisis. Uh-huh. And so low rates are still distortive and dangerous and problematic, right. but that's not the same thing as me saying that history will repeat itself. And part of that is you're, you're hinting at that they changed some regulations that, that hinder banks from getting leverage like that. Well, I don't think it was only regulatory. I think the market would have been perfectly capable. Um, investors in banks are, were not going to be willing post 08 to let the equity get wiped away because of an excessive debt profile. And banks themselves that were lending out their own capital mm-hmm. were not going to be willing to um, do bad underwriting mm-hmm. and lend a ridiculous amount without protective equity. And then investors in the mortgage bonds that these mortgages get sold off into were not going to continue to buy the bonds if they didn't know there was better underwriting. Mm-hmm. So that's always one good thing about a bubble mm-hmm. that blows up is it the market corrects in yep. the future. Uh-huh. You're right. There's also a stricter regulatory apparatus, but that has more to do with the investment banks and their own capital ratios, local banks and what we all lend. Like there's no regulation right now that says I can't lend you 100 percent of the money to buy your house. Right. Right. But it would be a dumb thing for me to do because I believe protective equity puts skin in the game. Stake in the game and all this stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Let's go. Let's go back a, a little bit uh, um, in this conversation. Uh, we were talking about kind of what happened last year. The five t- trillion dollar in stimulus money. You know, what does this mean? What kind of cocktail are we creating? That that kind of stuff. Um, at, now, uh, maybe I'm using the wrong terminology here, but like conventional economics or or how I would be articulating what's going on. Um, I, I think you you'll you'll agree with some of this, but then kind of add to it and adjust it. You know, we had this uh, kind of, uh, you know, faux shutdown, this faux uh, kind of economic depression. It's kind of artificial. There we go. Artificial economic depression this last year because of of COVID. And then we added, we gave stimulus money. We gave unemployment insurance, uh, um, unemployment benefits out all the way even through September with the Fed Fed dollars. Uh, And so it seems like kind of what happened in my mind is we told everyone to stop working um, we we gave them money. On top of that, we killed the supply chains, um, or or drastically hurt the supply chains, and are paying people to stay home from work. Uh, added more money to the economy while less goods are being produced. And to me, that's like the perfect you know a chemical reaction for inflation. And and we are seeing some inflation. We're seeing kind of you know really two thousand eight inflation numbers right now. Um, is is that the main problem we're going to get into in, in in the future of our our economy in the next coming years? Is inflation going to keep going up? Um, you know what? Where are we going with this? Yeah, so there are some who would answer the question. Yes, I'm not one of them, and I want to explain that. But I think that there are people that right now have become concerned about inflation. It's interesting that a lot of people on the right have decided that excessive government spending is inflationary. We got to be really worried about it. And they weren't remotely worried about inflation with trillion dollar deficits each of the pre-COVID years. Um, So the reason is that government spending is not inflationary. Mm -hmm. But to the extent one believes that government spending is inflationary and government spending is obviously run amok, 
I can understand why they would be worried about it being inflationary. Real quick, real quick, let me stop you there. Why is government spending not inflationary? um, Well, for one thing, let's just, before we explain why, let's just grant that it isn't. Okay. And then we'll explain why it isn't. And, And so right now you can take the last 40 years. That's a pretty good long period of time. And you could look at the United Kingdom, the United States, the European Union, and Japan, those are four, the four most developed economic regions on earth. Mm-hmm. And you've had debt to GDP blow out. You've had overall absolute levels of debt blow out, mm-hmm. not just total absolute level of debt, but debt as a percentage of the economy mm-hmm. combined with the annual deficits as a percentage of GDP growth. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that your credit card balance divided by your balance sheet mm-hmm. has gone up as a percentage but the way you're adding to the credit card as a percentage of your income is right. going way higher. Right. And in all four cases, you've had constant disinflation. You've had a constant lowering of bond yields. There's nothing that measures inflation better than a bond yield, a 10-year, 30-year, the long-term government bond that right now, when uh, Reagan left office, we had about $900 billion of national debt and we had a 9% interest rate on the 10-year government treasury. Yeah, yeah. Now it's 2021, and we have $26 trillion of debt, mm-hmm. and we have a 1.5% as of today. Mm-hmm. So on the day we're sitting here talking, they announced CPI numbers, consumer price index for last month. They had gone up 0.5%. Yep. So again, you had an increase in this price level, yep. and there's different nuances within that I can talk about. And the, te- the cost of the 10-year treasury, the interest rate it pays, went down five basis points. The value of the bond went up. Uh-huh. And this has been happening over and over again throughout all this talk. People do not lend the government money for 10 years for, at a 1.5% rate if they believe that inflation is going to be 3 4 5%. Right. So the, the first thing you have to do is establish empirically that we have had primarily deflationary forces, more radically so in Japan, right. less so in the United States, right. while we have blown out our debt. Right. I'm, I'm going to ask you to repeat yourself probably a little bit here, but okay. um, maybe kind of clarify or draw out the differences between or, or, or the, scenario, the inflationary scenario versus uh, what basically define inflation, define deflation. Well, that, that, this is, I can give you my opinion of those definitions, but these are disputed terms. Uh-huh. And so Milton Friedman famously said that inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. Yep. And I, I think most of us would accept a quick qualifier to his answer of too much money chasing too few goods and services because yep. we do have uh, such a heavy, heavy service-oriented economy now. Uh-huh. Um, and, and the result of having too much money chasing too few goods is um, prices increase is what we would call inflation. Uh-huh. And so there are a number of different ways to measure it. The number one biggest mistake people have always made about inflation is believing that there is such thing as a price level. Yeah. Um, it is the most worthless term in all of economics. Ooh. And the analogy, I, um, I stole this from somebody else. I didn't make it up myself. Um, but I should pretend I did because it's brilliant. <laughs> is it would it be useful to you if you were a golfer and I said, Hey, the average weather is 70 degrees right now? Mm-hmm. 
and yet we were in Vermont and it was 30 and we were in Florida and it was 90. It wouldn't help you very much to get an idea of what the average um, in, uh, uh, temperature was. Right. The fact of the matter is that prices are very, very dynamic and they respond to different things at different times. So for me, who is very much in the deflation camp, that we are dooming ourselves to Japan-like deflation as a result of our excessive government um, debt, and that the only thing that has really uh, kicked the can and allowed us to be a little healthier than that is that we do have better demographics uh, and, and better productivity mm-hmm. in our country that's at least kind of gracefully given us a little bit of a head start. Yeah. But, but even myself, I would say there's been ridiculous and inexcusable inflation in higher education yep. and in housing mm-hmm. and in um, healthcare costs. Yeah. But none of those things are monetary. None of those things are Milton Friedman-like inflation. Yeah. All of those things are a result of government subsidy, that when the yeah. government's subsidizing something, prices go higher, and right. that's inflationary. Right. That so- is an inflation that I would talk about all day long because uh-huh. all three of those things are morally inexcusable and have a specific policy factor creating them. But when we talk about broad level of prices going higher, um, even right now, it's almost embarrassing to hear conservatives going on Fox News saying, oh, my gosh, look at gas prices. This inflation's horrible. Uh-huh. And gas prices were five dollars a gallon from 2010 to 2014. Uh-huh. They were, it's true. They were two dollars a gallon a year ago when everyone was criminalized for leaving their house. Yeah. So they're three dollars a gallon now. Is that inflation? Yeah. Prices going down 40 percent in 10 years. Right. So you're what you're trying to do with inflation is you're trying to connect a moral component to it to where you're saying okay this is this is where inflation is bad the cost of a burger going from a dollar to a dollar 50 well that's not that's not really infl- we don't we we can't even really say that's inflation because there's so many factors going on demand uh you, you know etc um so but you're trying to tag inflation the problem with inflation to like a moral component you know some sort of government uh connection you know you know to the policy or, or whatever with like hospitals yeah. medical industry and so forth yeah I, I think a burger going from a dollar to dollar fifty is immoral if it were a result of inflation right um but if it were a result of the overall price level increasing that is somewhat undefinable and wages are growing in tandem with with prices yep then you measure it by what quality of life. Ultimately, inflation is a highly regressive tax. I don't say this arrogantly. I made some jokes at your conference last year in Nashville, and I think some people were offended. But I, I, don't, I only say this to make the point. I wouldn't know it if a cost of a burger went higher. I wouldn't yeah. know it if gas prices went up. It would never, right. it just, it's not something I would even be able to notice right. in the ebb and flow of my life, just where right. I'm at economically. Uh-huh. But I think that people on low income deeply suffer from burger prices going higher, gas prices going higher. Right. And so I think that needs to be resisted morally, but I don't think that's what we have happening. I, what I would add to your point about, yes, I want to get into the morality mm-hmm. and, the, and the immorality of policies that are leading to inflation in some of these particular areas, okay. none of which I consider to be monetary. Okay, but I think deflation is immoral. Yeah, so that's that's the next the follow up. You define the inflation um, kind of Milton Friedman ish, which I agree with. Um, I've been um, quoting that. Uh, um, so, how do you define deflation? What is deflation doing, and why is it immoral? 
Well, if inflation is too much money chasing too few goods, then take into an extreme, deflation is not enough money chasing um, uh, too many goods. Uh-huh. And so it would be um, the great example in modern history would be Japan. After their bubble burst in 1989, they've embarked upon a couple of decades of, high, of really significant deflation. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, the debt bubbles have exploded in the United States. We've had either mild deflation or what some economists would call disinflation. Okay. But we have never had inflation come out of debt bubbles bursting. Right, right. And, and so my opinion, I talked a moment ago about us not trying to fight yesterday's battles. Yep. I think most people in the sort of theological camp that um, is reasonably overlapped with some of the things you and I believe, mm-hmm. where they've gotten this so profoundly wrong is they're still fighting the battles of the 1970s and missing, I think, the point of what has gone on is 40 years of a policy regime, both fiscal and monetary, that is putting incredible downward pressure on growth. Uh And we've lived through a period until the financial crisis. You and I lived through a period, some of it was my childhood, but certainly through my young adult and now the last couple decades of my adult life as I get closer to age 50, uh-huh. we've lived through a period of, uh, of really good real GDP growth, really solid economic yeah. growth. And I don't believe that that's even remotely possible for our kids and grandkids. And that is a deflationary reality brought about by excessive government debt where they have taken future growth into the present. Yep. And now the future will have to pay for it which means there will be less real economic output in the future. Wow. I consider that to be immoral. So if deflation is you know, not enough money for too many goods, wouldn't that put pressure on, on the, goods, uh, the cost of goods and services to bring pricing down? Well, you've had radical uh, price competition other than in those areas where there's a government subsidy. A VCR cost $800 in 1985, <laughs> and right now you and I can uh, put on a, a – a phone or any different device and watch 3000 movies. Right. You know, um, now a lot of that's techno technological innovation. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, that's a very healthy kind of deflation yeah. in my opinion. But my, my point being demographics and technology and globalization, um, you had a lot of countries look, China had 500 million people enter the workforce in the last 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. That is deflationary. That's a lot more people to, and a lot more labor output to soak up that economic activity, to create economic activity and then soak up the, that monetary impact. Mm-hmm. They've exported a lot of their deflation. And I think that, um, that what we get into trouble with is not understanding the diminishing return of more government debt and more monetary policy. When the interest rate's at 5% and you lower it to 3%, you lowered it by 2%, but it was a 40% reduction. Uh When the interest rate is at 1%, you can't lower it by 2%. Mm -hmm. And whatever you're lowering by, once you're that low, you have no margin to lower it by 40%. Right, right. So you, you have a diminishing return from it. But where the deflation comes in, I apologize if I'm I'm going too fast or if I'm giving us too much of a mouthful. Ultimately, one of the great things they they did to heal the economy out of the financial crisis, when I say great, I mean it it had a good impact, but it comes at a cost. All of economics 
is the study of trade-offs. It's a big point in my upcoming book coming out this November. Mm-hmm. The, one of the, the good parts of the trade-off was that they reflated the corporate economy. Businesses went on and took on debt and leveraged up, and they did it productively. Yep. Because corporate America is a pretty good allocator of resources. Uh-huh. And so they were able to borrow money at 3% and get a return on equity at 10% and invest into new projects, new technologies, this and that. Right. So that's fine for now. But here we are and we're saying, okay, well, we need more medicine. We just had a global pandemic. We need more liquidity. We need to lever up. Uh We need more economic activity. Uh But all the good borrowers have already borrowed. They, They had three times debt to income 10 years ago. Now they have five times debt to income. They can't borrow anymore. So you either have two choices. Either you get no re-leveraging, deflation, or you get really bad leveraging and you get a bubble in assets. You get a misallocation of resources, what Ludwig von Mies called malinvestment. Right. So So so, choose your poison. Yeah, yeah. So with, with deflation and kind of the deflationary situation, who's the morally wrong agent when it when deflation is actually a bad thing? You gave a good example of when deflation was a good thing, but when de- deflation is actually a bad thing, who's usually kind of the moral agent? The people, there that, the people that are demanding the government spending because government spending is always the, the creator of that um, deflation. You get a bubble that burst mm-hmm. and then the, the aftermath or aftershock or hangover of the bubble bursting is deflationary. And then you treat the hangover with more booze. <laughs> so are, is deflation happening because when the government brings money into the economy, it's not as productive as say, you know, a corporate America bringing a, a loan into the economy or money into the economy. Does that, does that make that's, sense? Yeah. That's very, very, very much true. And we know this intuitively, right? That government is not the ideal allocator of resources. Mm-hmm. But if one believed that the government could be a decent allocator of resources at a point of budget equilibrium, which uh-huh. was John Maynard Keynes' belief, mm-hmm. even John Maynard Keynes now would not believe that operating from the point of one or two trillion dollar deficits, that from there the government can still effectively stimulate aggregate demand. Mm-hmm. Or um, at, at this point, right. they have already created such a diminished return that what they call the multiplier effect yep. is non-existent. So you've right. had this declining multiplier effect, which is the economic growth you get from every dollar of government spending. Right. His goal was, okay, the economy shrunk. We're going to spend $1 government spending, but get $1.20 of output from it. Right. But over time, once you pass certain debt ratios, economists have, have been able to really quite impressively quantify this. You end up getting 30 cents, 20 cents on right. the dollar. Right. And that's where we are now. Right. So um, it seems like you've used the term stagnation. Um, I listened to uh, your Capital Records podcast where you were talking about uh, some of the stuff. Uh, you use the term stagnation that basically a deflationary economy is going to create a stagnant economy, a stagnation kind of economy, and then of course you connect that to to Japan and everything. What do you what do you mean by uh, connect the dots for me between deflationary and a stagnation? Um, uh, stagnation. Well, I, I think they're 
I think that they're mostly one and the same. There, there's okay. a bit of a kind of uh, Venn diagram you could do where there's an overlap and deflation properly used might be more of a monetary concept. Stagnation could refer to overall economic output. Uh-huh. But basically, Gabe, we had um, 3.1% real GDP growth. So net of inflation, our economy was growing at 3.1% on average since World War II. Okay. We've had one year of sort of 3%. It was basically 29 or 3% real GDP growth in 2018. Uh-huh. So even that year wasn't quite at just the base trend line level. Okay. And other than that, we haven't had a single year of trend line real GDP growth since the financial crisis. So why now, does- we, But that's different than saying that we're in recession, which is uh-huh. negative GDP growth. Right. So how are we, even with all these um, problems of excessive government spending, yep. having any, gov- any forward growth? Because we're all human actors. We're all a- people acting in their self-interest are able to generate a lot of economic activity. Yep. But our output is, should be a he- for the education level and talent level and economic foundation of our society – that we are only able to get one to two percent real GDP growth right now is utterly unforgivable. It's it's like we're building an economy and the wind's blowing against us. Or, Very much so. Yeah. Um, but it, but it, it, it's almost literally that way because if you know next year you're going to get a bonus and you go out and spend it right now, you're not getting growth next year. Mm-hmm. You would have gotten it, mm-hmm. but you spent it this year. You bought, you put, ran up the credit card. Yeah. And, and that's fine if what you did with that was do something that's going to be more productive. Right. And so then when you get your bonus, you get a higher return. Right. But if you bought a big screen TV or, or took a vacation or some, something right. like that, something that was somewhat wasteful, right. not wasteful in a bad way, but I'm saying a non-productive way right. as an economic term. I'm not making a moral judgment yeah. on it. Yeah, right. But then when that bonus comes, you didn't get growth. Right. But you were going to get that growth. Now you yeah. didn't get it. If, if I took you know, $10,000 and went and, and did a uh, you know, vacation in Walla Walla versus taking that $10,000 and, and buying, let's say, lawnmower equipment, well, I can make money off the lawnmower equipment. I can, I can make more money investing in that versus just spending that money and never seeing the return there is what you're getting at, right? That's exactly right. And so the pr- productivity of our activities is very connected to the monetary conversation because what we're going to do with our time – and our, uh, our capital has to do with our risk appetite. And we are less likely to take risk if we don't believe the economy is going to get that economic growth. Mm-hmm. And if we believe that government spending is going to curtail the opportunity set in the society. Mm-hmm. So you get less capital investment, and then that creates this debt deflation downward spiral. And I think ultimately... We really, as a society, should be embarrassed Oof. that Amazon is still basically the, the, as big of a company as it is. Uh-huh. We talk like this is new tech and cool tech and big tech. This company is 25 years old. Yeah. Okay? We're supposed to have new companies coming and kicking people off the mountain. Right. We're supposed to have creative destruction. Right. That's what our economy is built for and what it's done really admirably well for a long time. We're starting to get some of that stagnation. But see, what I won't do that too many of my Christian friends do is melodramatize this. Uh I'm afraid of stagnation, 
But I also recognize we have an awfully talented pool of economic activity we're swimming in. So then you have to look not no. just to what's happening, but what could be ha happening. Right. That's, to me, the part that is so sad for my kids and grandkids is that we are not living up to our potential economic output. One of our listeners just brought this up. I was going to ask you about this. Um, we're also running into a real big demographic problem right now in the United States. Um, early retirement, people leaving the market, people leaving the economy, excuse me, uh, people leaving the workforce. Uh, how's that playing into all all the kind of cocktail that we're building? Well, it's a disaster. And, and, and yet I say that um, on a relative basis, it's been one of our strengths. You know, Japan went to 0 0.8 kids per household and we stayed at 2.1 kids per household for quite some time. Right. But now we, since the financial crisis, we've dipped down to 1.7 or so. I think last year we got into the one six range and you could yeah. argue maybe COVID stuff was a part of it, right. but either way we're, we're below the two kids per household level that are needed just to keep our, our population intact. Right. Well, this is just algebraic. This is, this right. is a tautology, right? All economic growth is, is your population growth times your productivity. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if your mm -hmm. population growth is declining, then you need more productivity, but you get less productivity when you have less population. So you get mm -hmm. a negative feedback loop instead of a positive feedback loop. The other issue of, of more senior people leaving the workforce started really heavily after the financial crisis. I talk about in my book, Crisis of Responsibility, that we had a 700% increase in disability claims, the labor yep. participation for, force has been steadily declining for a long time, and now it's really declining right. in the COVID moment. Mm -hmm. And um, I view it as a really bad thing economically, mm -hmm. but I choose to address it not primarily as an economic problem, but as an existential problem, a moral problem, yep. a spiritual problem, because I believe God made us to be producers. That that's that's really good. Last, uh, I got a couple two two kind of follow up questions here, and then we're done. Um, uh, I. Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I pulled in a Sonic, and you know how Sonic has the bay, the bays out there, and on on the bay of of the on the uh, speaker of the bay that I pulled into, they had a piece of paper up saying, due to the nationwide economic shortage, we don't have the staff to serve the bay, so you got to go through the drive through. Yeah, um, and I, I mean that's not the only you know experience I've had with this kind of thing. I've, I've known people locally here who are having a hard time even finding people to to mow their yards kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, is, is that shortage largely connected to, uh, well, I'm, you know, describe the demographic shortage. Is it connected to uh, the unemployment benefits that were given through September, uh, the retirement rates going up besides the one, two, two, less than two children thing? What, what's driving that? Because it seems like U.S. population is still increasing year over year. Yeah, no, that's almost entirely the the short-term impact of this absurd federal subsidy of unemployment. Yeah. Um, and and it's it's very systemic. It's not just happening in certain states. Yeah. Um, 25 states now, that's half of the country last time I checked, has uh, dropped out of receiving yep. the federal subsidy. And and one of those states is Maryland, okay? This is not like a red state, blue wow. state thing. yeah. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, that will probably go down as the thing that causes Biden to fire some of his economic people. Um, issues about taxes and spending and stuff, nobody cares. And, and th right. th there's not going to be disagreement about it. Mm 
But this was a really big unforced error on their part. There was no need for them to add and extend that federal subsidy. Right. There was just no need. Right. And and so I think uh, the unintended consequences are things like a labor supply shortage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my wife and I have a house out in East Hampton in New York. We were out there last weekend and every uh, shop had one of those signs up saying help wanted and wow. and whatnot. And, and you're you're getting worse service in a restaurant because they can't get people to come to work. Mm-hmm. But the data is as clear as could be as well. The weekly initial claims are dropping, but the continuing claims have stayed constant and are still four or 500,000 higher than they were back in March before we had vaccinated most of the population. The only reason for that is the um, incentives Mm -hmm. to not go work. So it it seems like last question here, it seems like um, we're really creating uh, the opportunity cost for our children and our children's children. That that's really where the problems being created at. How do we, as Christians work now, build now, uh, do the best we can to to limit, I guess, the the pain for our children in the future or, or the opportunity costs in the future? Yeah, the, ans- the answer to that is always the same. When there's a macro problem, what do we do on the micro is we do it different. Immunize yourself, vaccinate yourself from the problem, be productive, go uh-huh. work hard. Uh, you know, um, I talked at your conference about punk rock Kyperianism. Be iconoclastic. Go against the grain. I can come up with a whole lot more cliches here. <laughs> but, but you, you know, there is nothing in a macro economy that is living above its means. That's all we're talking about. Yeah. That's all we're talking about is that the society is living above its means. So how do you do things differently for you and your kids don't live above your means and don't encourage them to live above their means? Mm. Now, are they still going to be victimized by the macro opportunity cost and economic growth? They are. And then and then that's where the question becomes different if it's directed to somebody like me who, who has a little bit of a microphone on matters of economics. Yep. What I've chosen to do is to not allow us to continue to be sort of false prophets about this stuff. Right. I, I The reason why the inflation deflation debate is important to me is because I don't want to lose credibility in the public square by calling for an earthquake when we end up getting a hurricane. <laughs> I, I, I want to be in the position of warning that some bad things are happening and here's why we fix it. Yeah. But but not not label it all wrong, and so that that um, that that technique is important to me. Yeah, well, uh, David, man, thanks so much for coming on Water Break. I'd like to, you know, maybe in a couple months after I process some more of this, talk about you know uh, uh, student debt, some of the stuff that the democratic policies are, I think are going to create uh, uh, more problems. I mean, Biden's. Uh, you know, financial budgets that he's recommending. There's just a bunch going on there that seems to me that's just going to add to what you're talking about. So we'll have to circle back around. Uh, we look forward to seeing you in uh, Tennessee at our conference in Nashville, uh, Lebanon, uh, Tennessee. I'll have to circle back around with you regarding what you're gonna, we're going to have you talk about there at that conference. So everybody else, uh, until next week. Oh, we got a great Sunday special coming for you guys on Sunday night. So tune in for that, and I'll see you guys next week. Love God. Go fight, laugh, and feast. Thank you.